All right, welcome back to another episode of the Two Planker Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Schaefer, and today on the show we have Mike Jaquit, the publisher for Freeze Magazine. And Mike, thank you very much for joining the show. Great to be here. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we're going to be talking a lot about the past. So, what have you, uh, what have you been up to recently? Uh, recently, I've I've uh, started a consulting company. Um, I've kind of got involved with the Olympic movement um, when I was the chief marketing officer of U.S. Ski and Snowboard for uh, six years. And when I left there, now four years ago, um, I started a consulting company that did a lot of what I did there um, uh, for other uh, national governing bodies. So USA Skateboarding, USA Cycling, USA Hockey, US Speed Skating. Um, I've been, I do a lot of sponsorship development for them. And then I also help them with their um, media rights negotiations as well. So kind of dipping a little bit of uh, a lot of uh, different career path experiences um, into my own company now, which is great, you know, kind of having my own company be my own boss. Um, I don't know if I'll ever be able to go back uh, on that, but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's doing that. And then I also have a, um, a partnership with an agency called Dragonfly, which is a company started by Adam Comey and Dave Swanwick, two former pro skiers um, that we go, you know, obviously way back to the freeze days. And, um, and we have an event agency that we do a lot of experiential events and, and um, uh, big events, large, mostly large events. Um, we just finished up the Formula E electric races in Brooklyn. So we were managed that whole thing for, for that company um, in Brooklyn for their one race in America. So um, yeah, like I'm busy as I ever would want to be. Um, and, uh, you know, got, got my own company going and then also have a partnership with another company. So, um, it's been good, uh, for me and, and actually, to be honest, um, spending a lot more time, uh, skiing and mountain biking and spending a heck of a lot more time, um, with my three kids. So, um, that works out really well. Yeah. That sounds like a good setup. I'm definitely glad I could, uh, steal an hour of your time in the middle of all that to yeah. <laughs> talk about freeze. So the way we connected is, uh, I mean, I could give the background story on this because uh, I haven't said it on my, on the mic yet, but I just got this itch to everyone, everybody I interviewed kept on talking about how freeze magazine was just such a huge influence for them. And I went on new schoolers and I finally was like, all right, I need to get my hands on, on some of these things to see what the hell was going on. And, um, I have the scanner app on my phone. I'm like, I got to share this with everybody else. And, yeah. uh, and that's kind of where you saw it. I posted on new schoolers. Hey, here's a bunch of copies of freeze that I had. And you said, Hey, let me, uh, let me fill in the rest and let's, let's yeah, that, that's got, your post got forwarded to me by four or five different people. Um, so yeah, I mean, everybody kind of, I guess, I guess knows where the stash, um, exists. Uh, when we, when we stopped publishing freeze in 2005, um it was late it was uh, the final issue went out the door um in the i think around october 2005 um uh i actually uh, moved to new york city and um uh two of the guys that worked for freeze um ryan miller our marketing director and then uh, ryan slack who was kind of our marketing intern guy um 
uh, nicknamed Meat. Uh, he, uh, uh, they stayed at Transworld um, and everybody else left and they kept working at Transworld. And uh, so they sent me um, uh, through the, and, and this stuff has been through about four moves, uh, but they sent me everything. They sent me all the boxes of magazines. They sent me the banners from the US Free Skiing Open. Um, they sent me all the merchandise that was, that was left. Um, so they sent it all out to me in New York and it, it lived in my basement and it survived a couple floods. Um, and I have it here with me in Park City as well. So um, it's super valuable like to people, uh, you know, not monetarily, but more like emotionally. And that's what you know makes me happy is that people will, um, I'll get like two or three emails a year, like, hey, my husband was in the magazine and I wanna surprise him for his birthday. Or, you know, I was in the magazine and, and I don't have it anymore. Do you happen to have it? And, you know, go down to the basement and find it and send it out to them and, uh, and just get, you know, tons of great feedback. And people are so excited um, when, when that, uh, you know, little piece of ski history exists. So, yeah, I got it all. It's in the basement. Um, and uh, I was happy to fill out your collection. Um, you did really well post 2002 but um yeah i think yeah. that was about a third the final third um so we had a we had a lot to fill your collection in with yeah and i still i'm still scanning them so um <laughs> i'll include i'll definitely include the link to all the digitized copies but it's got to be a big relief because a lot of people commented that oh you know i was a teenager when i had these and i threw them out you know when i moved to college yeah. or whatever and they're just, they've yeah. been kicking themselves for 20 years so to unearth them and kind of uh, revisit everything, it's been it's been it's been fun. Yeah, I'd say the biggest regret that we have on well, two the two biggest regrets I have about Freeze Magazine. One, um, when when they when the end time came and and there was a lot of things going on um, and with me and my career and 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 just you know it, it was time for me to move on um, and it just devastated me that I wasn't able to hand the reins off to somebody, um, you know, uh, I, I, you know, either the new schoolers guys or, you know, or someone in the community, because there was a lot of them that could have really, you know, run with it um, and, and kept it alive uh, because it, it still had a lot of stories to tell. And, and, you know, we were, we were a profitable magazine at the end, you know, we, we, the ironic part is when we weren't profitable, um, we were most popular. And when we got profitable, uh, then all of a sudden, you know, uh, um, uh, they decided to stop publishing it. So my biggest regret is that I, that I wasn't able to pass it on uh, to somebody because it was time for me to go. But, um, the you know, the second biggest um, uh, regret on, on everything uh, is that we only have low res files from the magazine so as crazy like you know because this is back when we would have to um scan slides and it just took and you know computer servers and you know you know everything was you just didn't have the amount of storage so we didn't store anything in high res it's all in low res so the entire archive really exists in print and not digitally um, and that is a challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm excited to kind of see where your project ends up and, and if that can be a truly, you know, digital 
copy of, of, of the archive, um, which would be great because it doesn't exist right now. It's all in print. Yeah. And it's definitely, it's dangerous having something that valuable only in print. Cause you know, a couple well-placed fires and floods and that basically erases it from, from history altogether. So, yeah, I, was, I live in the mountains. I know all too well about the fire stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. So hopefully we can get a digital copy. I think it would be great for the sport and be great for everybody that was ever in the magazine, which the list was long and, and, um, and I think it would be awesome. Yeah, definitely. So we're, uh, the way we're telling the story, it's very uh, cinematic. It's like a lot of movies. We're starting at the end, and then everyone's, yeah, having to figure, everyone's having to figure out how we got to this point. So let's go back to the beginning. Um, let's yeah. go back to the beginning for you, and then we can really get into like the business side of how Freeze was launched. But um, from what sure. I understand, you grew up fully surrounded by skiing. Um, is that true? Yeah, I grew up um, in Sun Valley, Idaho. Um, we moved there when I was seven um and uh and and um you know went to kindergarten with peekaboo street and you know went to elementary school and 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 high school with uh zach and reggie christ and and um the lidecker's and uh skip merrick and just a, a a bunch of muffy davis um uh just a bunch of people that ended up being on the u.s um the u.s ski team and in Peekaboo's case, you know, gold medalist. Um, but actually, I uh, made a decision when I was 13 years old to to be a cross country skier, um, and um, always kept, you know, alpine skiing. And and the mountain in Sun Valley, Bald Mountain, is just the most ridiculously uh, steep, sustained terrain. You know, especially on bad old straight ski technology, uh, you certainly get a, uh, you know, it teaches you how to turn a ski and teaches you how to have an edge. So I always skied, you know, alpine skied, but became a cross country racer and ended up being a pretty good one, five time high school all American, and then went to University of Colorado and, and skied there uh, on the cross country team for two years and was a varsity letterman um, uh, on the national championship team. Um, but that sophomore year, um, is when, um, you know, uh, I had grown up with Kent Kreitler, you know, he and I were high school classmates, um, same year. Um, and we moved in together into a house at, in Boulder at university of Colorado, and we needed a roommate, uh, a fourth roommate. Um, and, um, that became Shane McConkey. And so it was Shane, Kent and I, and another guy named DJ Hodge, who we also grew up with in Sun Valley. And the four of us just had, I don't know. I, I mean, I'd put, I'd put our, that year, um, you know, the, the winter of uh, the fall of 90 and the winter of 91. Um, I would put that year up against any, anybody else's college experience in the history of college experiences. Um, that year was incredible. It was great snow. We did a bunch of really fun trips. Um, but we just like every single day, largely fueled by, by Shane. Um, every day was just, you know, one after another amazing day. Everybody was living life to their fullest. And we were, you know, having big, we had this great house with, hosting huge parties and um we had a lot of really really cool friends and and we would all go up in the mountains every chance we could get to 
um, to ski and, and, you know, nailed some powder days, um, uh, had an epic trip to, to Alta, uh, for a, for four day weekend. So, um, we just like that winter was total game changer for me. Uh, the rest of my life was, was never the same. Um, when I knew how fun, <laughs> how fun life could get, um, it, it was that year. And uh, really, you know, obviously influenced the whole rest of my, certainly influenced the, the eventual creation of Freeze Magazine, but really influenced the rest of my life. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a, the demographic for this podcast, a little bit on the younger side, you know, 20s primarily. So could you talk yep. about, could you talk about Shane a little bit? And I guess, um, Maybe, I mean, since you guys, your lives merged together so closely for the freeze years, like yeah. where he was from originally and kind of uh, mm -hmm. what, what he was up to before he met you. Yeah, Shane was, um, Shane grew up in Santa Cruz, California, um, and he just loved going to Tahoe and, and um, his dad's a, his dad uh, is a, a very famous skier. Um, there's a McConkie's lift here in Park City. Um, that's actually named after Shane's dad, not after Shane. Um, and uh, his dad was a kind of a film skier. Uh, he was a Canadian um, and he married Shane's mom. And, and, um, and Shane, when he was very, very young, uh, would be going from Santa Cruz to Squaw Valley and skiing and, and then uh, got really good in the race program and went to Burke Mountain Academy. And uh, he was just a really, really skinny, skinny kid. He had an incredible natural ability um, in skiing and he was a GS and slalom specialist. Um, but, uh, you know, didn't make the, uh, just not big enough, strong enough to make the US ski team. So went to, went to school at University of Colorado to try to be on the ski team and just never made grades. Um, he just uh, was um, incredibly smart. Uh, but just uh, not not really book smart and and had a and had a real kind of tough time uh, managing schoolwork as did I as did Kent um, you know we we were all you know all of us in this house uh, were were barely making grades um, and you know Shane uh, just didn't make grades enough to, to stay on the ski team and um, but yeah I you know like between. I think when he got to Burke uh, and certainly when he got to University of Colorado two years later, he was um, like really shy, dorky kid, but just hilarious. And, and he and I actually shared a room. So we were in a, a, a three bedroom house and with four guys. And so Shane and I um, shared a room and yeah, I got to know everything about him. Um, and, and we, we had a really, really close relationship and, um, it's just one of those guys that like, you know, again, every day he'd wake up, he was trying to do something, you know, he was trying to like, before the word progression got to skiing, you know, Shane was trying to progress life right? and he was trying he wanted to rollerblade down some crazy hill in boulder he wanted to jump off a roof um uh and you know he wanted to try to get a double back on a trampoline um you know just all these things that he kept like his his goals were you know all about trying to have fun and and 
he really want his dream job was to be a stuntman. He kind of realized that um, uh, in college, um, you know, he wanted to try to do this pro skier thing, um, but uh, but he really kind of thought he would be able to fall back on being a stuntman. Um, and yeah, you know, he he would later become I don't know what six seven years later after after that uh, fall of ninety winter ninety one season. Um, six, seven years later, he would become arguably the most influential and famous skier of all time and would crush it for a decade, um, before, before he passed. Um, and, uh, yeah, a, a lot of people always ask me like, um, like, did Shane know that he was going to be a pro skier or did, did Shane have aspirations to be the most famous skier in the world? Nope. Not even close. Um. We just kind of never even knew that was a path. Um, but when it all happened um, and he did become the most famous and influential skier in the world, it wasn't ever, it wasn't really ever surprising to me. Um, but uh, again, it was just there, that path didn't exist before, you know, really Shane and Kent created that path and, you know, freeze magazine was along for the ride um, in, in documenting all that. Uh, but um you know, it was really those two guys that kind of like, and, you know, and a bunch of others that just decided that they were just going to, um, you know, keep going for it and, uh, and created a, a really, really incredible thing for the sport. Um, and I think that was like, that would be the one thing that I think we didn't realize at the time um, that there was, there was a version of skiing that we were into and you know a few others that we met were into um um like seth when we met seth he was into it um but the, you know not a lot of others and certainly not the ski industry the ski industry had no idea that this version of skiing existed and these people existed and their eye was off the ball um with that and that created a wonderful opportunity for freeze um you know just simply like how can I document what's going on with this group of skiers? Um, because this group of skiers is everything that the, that skiing should be about. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what we said about documenting. Yeah, that is a, yeah, that's a great summary of what was going on. Um, so you had a, you were the cross country skier, you had a racer. Was there anyone really into moguls in your group? It's funny, uh, uh, Shane, Shane actually became a mogul skier uh, because of the money. It was the only way you could, could earn money in skiing. So he did, I remember the very first mogul contest he did, he did them on, uh, he did the mogul contest on Rosnall GS skis with Derby Flex bindings. So these raised bindings. And they were like 205s. Um, and probably the worst mogul ski ever constructed in the history of, of time. And he went up to the CU bump off, which was an amateur, was like a club program. And the winning prize was 500 bucks. And that's the only reason he entered. He didn't like mogul skiing. None of us loved mogul skiing. Um, we were out bumping a little bit just because, you know, we were skiing the whole mountain. But, you know, we didn't have a passion for moguls. And Shane just went up there and won 500 bucks. And then all of a sudden realized that he could go and, to all these mogul contests that had 
prize money and beat everybody because uh, he was that good of a skier. Um, I mean, he won a pro mogul contest. Uh, the second season, he started skiing moguls. So first season he skied moguls, he won a couple amateur contests. Second season, he started skiing moguls. He won a pro mogul contest in Copper Mountain and, um, and won like 2,500 bucks. And it was like the greatest day of his life. So he was just so talented um, that he could just drop into to really anything and, and crush it. But yeah, we didn't really have a, I mean, we were all, we all skied moguls because we skied the whole mountain. Um, but nobody that, that skied competitively until Shane realized you could make money on it. So he, he went out and made money on it. Um, but then that quickly ended when Kent did the U S extremes. Um, and, and, and I think did really well. I want to say he got second or something like that. Um, and won some money there and, you know, Kreitler told Shane, like, cause they skied together all the time. We all did. Um, um, he said, you should try this extreme skiing thing out. And, and, you know, when, once Shane got into that, then, you know, there was no more mogul skiing. Um, but yeah, the, the dynamic of the group was that, you know, Shane and Kent would go do stuff. And then I was a journalism school student. Um, and I had access to, to all the AV equipment at the journalism school at university of Colorado. So like really good cameras at the time, they're all VH, they all shot VHS, but, um, I had access to, to camera gear, tripods, editing rooms, you know, unlimited editing, editing room time. Um, so I was the guy that, that shot everything. And those were the guys that started and everything. And, and uh, we would create uh, a best of uh, season movie that would come out um, uh, the following fall after the, a year's worth of skiing. And um, we'd have big parties at our house and set up, you know, everybody would huddle around a 36 inch square four by three television with a VHS tape and we'd play it. And um, yeah, those were, you know, those were like, I think when, 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 those, when those movies, and again, they were 10, 12 minute, highlight clips of all of us skiing mostly Shane and Ken but um uh you know a bunch of other guys that we hung out with that are you know all just college students not not pro skiers um but when those became really really popular um and people were just like wanted to continue to watch them and want and like we're you know and, and it was these were our movies and everybody kept telling us like, this is better than Warren Miller. This is better than anything out there. Um, I think that's probably when we started realizing that there was also something going on as well. Um, that, uh, that, you know, what we were doing and how we were skiing the mountain was, was different than, than everybody. And, and people were getting excited about seeing it. Um, you know, it was, it was rare that you got to, we kind of kept to ourselves. So it was kind of rare that you get to ski with with those guys just on a regular random weekend um so being able to see it on vhs tape was was uh you know something unique and special yeah so so obviously you lived through this era and this was uh, several years before i was even born so forgive me if i'm <laughs> yeah. mangling up the timeline so when you say the the extreme like the extreme skiing was this when skiing was being you know inspired by snowboarding or was this even before 
snowboarding took off in a big way. Like was was skiing already going towards the extreme route before before it really exploded with terrain parks and you know all of that. Yeah, so there wasn't any terrain parks on on any mountains um, in the mid '90s. Um, you know, there there are a couple of them that popped up here and there, um, but they weren't terrain parks. They were pieces of terrain, and they were called snowboard parks. Um, they weren't called terrain parks. They're called snowboard parks. And then as we got to the late '90s, um, uh, that's when more and more of them started to pop up, and then most of the big resorts had them. But again, they were called snowboard parks. And it wasn't really until like 98. I mean, we had a, you know, early in the freeze days, um, uh, early in the freeze days, we had a, a half pipe. We started a half pipe contest because there wasn't any real, the skiers largely were not allowed in half pipes. So we went about trying to change that by creating a half pipe contest and essentially renting out these terrain parks from the resorts for skiers. And, um, and uh, you know, that was really when that whole, you know, skiers in the terrain park thing started taking off was like 90, the winter of 98, winter of 99. And the extreme skiing thing and skiing in Alaska, um, you know, skiing big lines in Alaska. Um, I would say those two things were much more of an early to mid nineties uh, thing. So it was, was out front. Um, and I think, you know, there was one of the really big goals of freeze magazine was to make the sport very relatable to young skiers. And uh, you know, there was the whole athlete thing, which is great. Um, but we also really, we didn't want this to be a magazine that was just about, you know, big lines in Alaska and, you know, backcountry skiing and stuff that 90% of the ski public would never do. Um, so when the terrain, you know, when we looked at terrain parks, um, really in the creation of the magazine, like when we're talking about it and before the first issue came out and we were trying to figure out what we were trying to create and who we were trying to create the magazine for, um, Terrain, like skiing inbounds was something that was really important because it was going to be relatable. And then, you know, the most dynamic terrain on every mountain that was inbounds was typically the, the snowboard park. So we set about making that a terrain park um, for skiers and snowboarders. And it wasn't easy. There was a lot of pushback. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, we eventually, we got there pretty quickly. I'd say, I'd say it was like one year of transition and then all of a sudden it was open for everybody um, after that. I mean, the, just, to, just to back up on, on timeline stuff, um, so uh, the summer of the, the winter of 95, um, I wrote, uh, I was living in Los Angeles and I wrote a, a TV pilot um, called Generation S. And it was about what was going on in Squaw Valley. Um, and it was basically a reality show. This is uh, even before the real world came out. Um, but it was during MTV Sports, which was a pretty, like that was the show that, that everybody um, our age was watching and that they were into. Um, and it was basically the first action sports television show on, on TV, MTV Sports. 
And so we were trying to, I was pitching them on ideas for segments and then wrote this pilot um, uh, TV show about Squaw Valley and about Shane and Kent and Brad Holmes and a few others. And that script got in the hands of a company called Times Mirror, which at the time owned LA Times, and, but they also owned a lot of magazines, um, including Ski Magazine and Skiing Magazine and Outdoor Life. And they saw it and, you know, they, the, you know, they had a very successful ski magazines um, that anybody under the age of 40 would not be caught dead reading. And uh, so they saw a really good um, uh, potential for it. And so, and we were talking about how we didn't want anybody over the age of 30 to read the magazine, right? Like, we, like we didn't want anybody we didn't want any old skiers checking it out. We wanted um, only young skiers to be kind of part of this whole thing. So uh, it was, you know, kind of a really good match made and, and they just greenlit the idea. Um, you know, they didn't, they kind of bought, bought the rights to it, but um, you know, I came with it and, uh, and with no print experience, um, no real writing experience outside of my journalism degree, um, I became the publisher and, and lead writer of, of a, uh, an editor of, of, and ads, I was publisher, editor, advertising sales, uh, event director, because we needed to start events because we needed to bring the magazine to life. And that's why we started the U.S. Free Skiing Open. Um, so I did all that as kind of a one-man band and, and, um, and then quickly got some people to help me out, um, and, you know, yeah, that was kind of the, the humble beginnings um, of the magazine was, was a TV script about the Squaw Valley ski scene. And that was the elevator pitch. Um, and that got made because there was a huge hole in skiing. Um, people thought wrongly, but people thought that everybody under the age of 30 or 20 was snowboarding and everybody over the age of 30 was skiing. When in actuality, um, there was more skiers on the hill between 12 to 20. That was the age range that we slotted. Um, there were more skiers on the hill, uh, 12 to 20, actually three times more skiers, 12 to 20 than there were snowboarders. Um, so that was also very, that was a helpful stat in getting them freeze uh, off the ground. Yeah. And so how old were you at the time when uh, you were pitching that reality show turn magazine 20, 20, uh, 24 25 yeah 24 25 um and it took about a year to get it all you know kind of pitched and done and and um we actually had this really super famous and fun um uh consulting group that we put together in boulder um and uh it was you know essentially the publishers of ski and skiing magazine, as well as the lead publisher and the lead marketing director of Transworld Snowboarding um, and Transworld Skateboarding, all those magazines. Um, we all went to Boulder and it was up to me to put together a group of, of skiers and influential people to pitch the idea of a magazine dedicated to this group of skiers and this kind of like youth movement in skiing. 
So uh, Murray Weiss and Steve Winter from Matchstick Productions came, Seth Morrison came, Wendy Fisher came, uh, um, Brad Holmes was there, um, uh, Shane uh, was there, Kent, uh, Shane and Kent were there, my roommates from college. Um, you know, they had, this was their first time back in Boulder in, I don't know, four or five years. Um, so we had, a, we had a really, really good group of, of people and we sat down and around a table and just started pitching story ideas. And, uh, and we came up with the first like two years of content in one meeting. Um, and we just didn't have a name. Um, we, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out the name. So it was going to be like, um, extreme skier, but like the word extreme was be becoming so taboo. Taco Bell had taken it over. So we knew we couldn't do extreme. We talked about mountain. Um, we, uh, we, we were really settled on punk rock skier. Um, uh, that was going to be the, that was like kind of the pitch. And then all of a sudden we tried to, we started laying it out and just didn't, just didn't work. Um, uh, and Holmes just came up, uh, came up with the, with the word freeze and it looked really cool because of the E's and the Z and, you know, we, we went right into all caps and yeah, it was, um, like that was, that became the name of the magazine, just Holmes literally pulled it out of his ass. But, um, um, that first focus group in Boulder, which was the summer of 96, um, we, we, we went to print with a magazine less than three months later, um, from like the pitch meeting, a couple of weeks go by of negotiating deals and figuring out budgets and all that stuff. Then it was a green light. And, uh, I started, I was living in Los Angeles and I started driving down to Oceanside to the Transworld headquarters and working with an art director down there. And working with a couple other people at Transworld just to because I didn't know anything about magazines and they helped me and um, we put the first magazine to bed in November um, you know we start we kind of started it in late September put it to bed mid-November and it came out uh, Christmas uh, 96 um, and people didn't really start seeing it until January of 97 um, but, uh, but we like Transworld did an amazing job of getting us on a lot of um, magazine shelves back when those were a thing and uh, newsstands and, um, uh, and everybody saw it and we just got like crazy good feedback right off the bat. Not, and I think that magazine, I think the first magazine we ever did was our worst. I know it was, it was definitely our worst, but um, uh but just people, just the idea of it and, and just the fact that we, you know, had a different voice and, and we introduced a bunch of new characters and, um, you know, one of the early things too, is I knew I wanted it to be funny. So, uh, I knew I wanted it to, to be, um, like easy, like not big stories, long stories, but I wanted it to be funny, short stuff and like the best photography in the world of these people. Um, and that's where we concentrated on. So like 
people kind of saw the the germ of that idea and then yeah um we just kept hammering that home issue after issue after issue photos funny characters um interesting people uh those were those are what we those are the notes we hit um every every magazine yeah so you have the you have the green light in terms of the idea who who supplied the funding and how much was that for the first issue and or that first year yeah. i'm not sure how it how they broke it up yes yeah, so uh we, we we came up with a cost um of about two hundred thousand dollars of what the first issue was going to be and this included salaries and photography costs um uh editorial costs we hired some writers um and then the biggest cost was printing um that was super expensive that was probably over a hundred thousand of the two hundred thousand um and times mirror which was the holding company um just bit off on that budget um and that included you know me becoming um a part-time employee and never i never became full-time um uh uh employed until like two years later um but yeah, uh, became a part-time employee and um, it was about $200,000 that got signed off on by Times Mirror. Uh, there was two, two, two people that were really influential in that decision. Um, Andy Clerman, who was the publisher of Ski and Skiing Magazine um, and Brian Selstrom, who was the publisher and, and part owner of Transworld uh, Publications. Um, uh, those two guys, uh, they were the first to see the script. Um, they were the first to kind of recognize that it could be, you know, good market for skiing. Um, and then to their credit, uh, they both sat through the focus group and, you know, they both took, took enough out of that focus group of, of thinking that there was some good ideas there and, and, and gave us a shot, which was a, a pretty big gamble on their, on their front. Cause you know, the 200,000, we actually made money on the first issue. So advertising went really well cause we were just pitching a, a whole new market. So nobody really wanted to miss out. So all the ski companies were in there. A bunch of resorts were in there. The apparel guys were in there. Um, my first sales call for freeze, um, was with Oakley and, uh, Pat McElvain, who, who would later become the head of marketing at Oakley for decades. Um, and a, and a woman named Chris Bowers, I had the meeting with, um, and I was living in LA, so I could just drop down there and, and pitch it to them. And they just like, I don't know, like not even five, 10 minutes into the pitch, um, Pat stopped me mid-sense and said, we're in, we're, we're in. Um, and he had been trying to figure out, like he knew Seth because Pat was a Vail guy and Seth was a Vail guy. Before Seth settled in Crested Butte, he, he grew up in Vail. And so Pat knew all about Seth um, from, from being in Vail and he knew all about Shane um, as well from being in Vail because both those guys were just, ripping up the mountain and destroying it and so when Pat got the job at Oakley he was trying to figure out he signed those two guys but he was trying to figure out how to advertise them and then all of a sudden I came around and and gave the pitch and and um, they were the inside front cover 
of the first issue, um, Oakley with a, with a Seth, um, ad, uh, a POV ad. And, um, yeah, it was, that was a match made in heaven, but we were very successful, um, from an advertising standpoint, right out of the gate. Uh, um, and then, but then when we, that kind of got us a little, maybe too over our skis, if you will. So we went from one issue to four issues and then four issues to five issues in the first three years of freeze. And so all those printing costs and all those distribution costs. And we really kind of thought that people would find us on the newsstand and that ended up not being a really good strategy. Um, so we ended up kind of out of the gate. We were essentially break even then year two and three, I remember in year two, we lost like $200,000, which I thought was a ton of money and I was devastated by it, but nobody seemed to really care at, um, at Ski Magazine, which was good. And then year three, I think we lost $400,000 um, on like a, like a $1.8 million budget um, there uh, in year three. And then year four, four, five, six, seven, eight, we made money on all those years. Um, we started kind of breaking even or making like 50 grand. And then by the end, uh, the profit uh, in 2005, um, that season, the profit was $250,000 of, of profit, straight profit. Um, and a lot of that came from the US Free Skiing Open, which became profitable. Uh, the East Coast Movie Tour, which actually was semi-profitable. Um, and, uh, you know, like some of the other marketing stuff that we started doing around the magazine, um, not just straight advertising. Um, but all those things convinced people to spend more money with us, um, you know, to instead of taking $10,000 of their million dollar budget and throwing it to freeze and having shitty creative and you know, whatever, which we turned down a lot of advertising because we thought it would be, you know, bad for bad for the image, um, which we were probably right. Um, and uh, to then all of a sudden becoming hundred and two hundred thousand dollar clients to these ski companies in our later years, and that's where we really started really cooking, big time. Jeez, that is some big, big money. For somebody that's like 25 to yeah. be at the head of all the be at the head of all of that. Um, yeah, well, um, yeah, I don't know, you know, um, it, it never the job never felt that big. Like it was I, there was a ton of pressure to create a great product. And the pressure on the product. And, and again, I think the, the decision early on that we made to try to be funny um, uh, was like, that's really hard. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's like just being funny is hard, um, but trying to be funny about skiing um, is even harder because uh, it's like a niche of a niche. Um, but it puts so much pressure on the product that I think that was like, our secret sauce. And because, you know, looking at kick-ass photos and laying them out in a magazine was really easy. Um, you know, like 
we knew where all the guys were. We knew what all the photographers wanted their stuff to be in freeze. Um, all the skiers wanted to be in freeze. Um, so like the, the ski stuff in the magazine was really pretty easy. Um, it was the, the, the humor and the style and the attitude and the, the point of view, like the vision that was really hard. And we spent like hours and hours, a lot of all nighters getting it right. Um, and that was, uh, and you know, but that was only like the publishing season was only like six months. The other six months we were out skiing. Um, uh, so like, I mean, it was a dream. I mean, it was a dream job. I mean, it was ridiculous how much fun it was. We had, I had an unlimited expense account. I skied all over the world. Um, I hung out with the most incredible people you could ever find yourself with. Um, and, you know, especially when the, the, you know, JF and JP and those guys, the, you know, the, when they came onto the scene and Tanner and Evan Raps, when they came on the scene and CR Johnson, when he came on the scene, just spent a lot of time with them. They were all like little brothers to me. Um, and, and we just, you know, like it was all uncle, uncle Mike's expense account that, that made the whole thing go all winter. Um, and, um, it was a dream job. The, the job, it didn't, ne it never seemed like a job, um, until the end, at, at the end, when I kind of woke up, um, and realized that I kind of needed to um, have a have a career. I thought I needed a real career. Um, I definitely needed to make more money than I was making. Um, and so, you know, that was when I was kind of ready to go um, uh, and make it back in television because that's where I kind of started my career in television. Sidetracked with Freeze for ten years, got back into television. Um, but yeah, that 10 years, I, I wouldn't trade a day. Um, uh, it was, it was a, a hell of a time. Yeah. And so you talked about that young talent. It seemed like you guys had built a stage and a platform to receive the sport as it was born. You know, like you, like there was a couple of people who were already in the sport and they're kind of pushing the boundaries, but that first wave of, of freestyle professional skiers, that you mentioned, it seemed like freeze was the freeze was the platform that they came up onto and was like, here we are. Is that, is that kind of how it played out? Yeah. It, um, like, so early on, um, so one of the first articles in freeze magazine was called the dirty dozen. And it was literally just like the publishers of ski magazine said, who are you making this magazine about, right? They couldn't believe that there was a whole side of skiing that they didn't know anything about. And I was like, oh, do you know this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, right? And I started naming off these 10, 12 people and they knew nothing about them. And I was like, okay, we need to tell some stories about these 12 people. And that was, you know, Shane and Kent and, and Wendy Fisher and, and Dave Swanwick and, and, you know, down the list, right? So there was kind of the launch of those 12 people was the original deal. And that was all people skiing Alaska, skiing the backcountry, all that stuff. Then the second, the second year, 
is when we started to introduce some terrain park stuff. And, and it was that winter, and that's when we started the US Free Skiing Open as well. And what was happening in skiing then was that, uh, this was before the internet. So you had a group of people in New Hampshire, a group of people in Vermont, a group of people in Breckenridge, a group of people in Vail, a group of people in Squaw, in the Pacific Northwest, in Taos, nobody skied together. They all skied their local resorts. They didn't know that they existed. And then this magazine comes along and tells the stories about all these people around the country. And that was the other thing that we did is like, you know, Europe, like we didn't waste our time trying to be a global magazine. We wanted to be a magazine for North America. Like, you know, even, even skiers in Whistler and skiers in Jackson Hole never skied together, right? It was just so rare. And so all these tribes started to learn about each other. And that's when they all came up. Like the, you know, the best skier in Montana was Tanner Hall as a 14 year old. The, you know, the, the guys killing it in Squaw Valley, which had the biggest scene, Shane and Kent and, and um, you know, all those guys out there, uh, the, the Gaffneys, all that stuff that came out, um, uh, but they had never really, you know, known about Tanner and Tanner didn't know about them, but everybody came uh, to the US Free Skiing Open, including the Canadians. And it was the first time that those Canadians had ever skied with Americans, um, you know, like JP, JF, Douglas, Vinny, Falou, um, the three Phils, those guys had never, you know, until they came to the U.S. Free Skiing Open, they had never, they had seen stuff in the magazine, Freeze Magazine. Um, they'd seen pictures, um, but they'd never seen anything in person until they started showing up the, at the U.S. Free Skiing Open in 1998 and 1999. And then the biggest one was 2000 when like all the tribes came together. And that was, um, you know, that like, you know, would it have happened eventually once the internet was came about four or five years later of course but it didn't exist and so it happened through the magazine and through the us and through the us free skiing open um all those people coming together and that's it was at, it was every resort's best skier suddenly realizing that they weren't the best skier in the world but then wanting to become the best skier in the world and pushing and pushing each other and that all kind of created this wonderful, wonderful, perfect storm of, of ski progression. That is awesome. That was the most concise kind of uh, summary of it that I've ever heard. Because it, it makes perfect sense that uh, that's the way it was. You know, there was, no, there was no way to connect with someone East Coast, West Coast. How are you going to know about each other? So that makes perfect yeah. sense. And I've never heard that before. So thank yeah, you for that. It was uh, it was it was. It was cool. Like the ironic thing is that the, is that the internet killed freeze. Right. Um, you know, uh, we had, we had this online forum. We got bought by AOL. So times mirror got bought by time, uh, Inc. Time Inc. Got bought by AOL. Right. This all happened over the course of like four years and freeze was very, very small part of that. But, we went with each transaction. So we were eventually owned by AOL. 
before that, um, like 99, 2000, 2001, we had had the freeze forum and it was literally, you know, like a WordPress uh, uh, chat room. And, and all these kids started talking to each other. Um, and, you know, and it was like, we created this wonderful community, right? And uh, so we had it. We had the magazine, we had the events, we had some other marketing programs, we had movie tours, and we had this like chat room where there was, you know, thousands of kids talking shit on each other every day. And, and the, the new schoolers guys who used to be the high cascade posse and then high cascade said they couldn't use their name. So they became the Midwest all-stars. Those are the original Midwest kids, right? That started new schoolers. They actually were in the freeze chat room, um, representing themselves as the high cascade posse. And, you know, and, and we're some of our biggest posters. Then AOL buys us, buys, you know, they didn't buy us. They bought Time magazine. They bought, you know, People. They bought all these huge magazines that we were a small part of. And AOL says across the entire company, you have to um, authenticate yourself in order to post anything. And uh, so we lost our entire community overnight. And the, the you, know, those, you know, those guys like Rogue and, and Schmuck and, and uh, all those guys up there in the Midwest uh, started New Scores chat room where you didn't have to authenticate yourself. You could have fake accounts. You know, you could, you could do, you know, you, you, oh, and the other thing is that you couldn't be under the age of 16 to post anything in a, in a chat room. Um, so that was like, two thirds of our audience. Um, so we lost our online, we lost our online presence overnight off of one corporate decision and we never got it back. And, and to be honest, you know, that's the eventual, you know, downfall of, of, of freeze magazine. Cause we, we lost our online community and subscriptions weren't great. Um, but uh, we we're profitable, but our subscriptions um, in the grand scheme of things weren't great. Um, and that was that was when they decided to pull the plug. And, you know, obviously, if we were able to transition to a really healthy online community, we were perfect for it. Um, we would have crushed it and dominated, but uh, we just couldn't couldn't react fast enough from from that decision that AOL made. Yeah. Well, th- so that's the life cycle of freeze. But what I want to talk yeah. about is the um, is the events because they were just so iconic. And the two in particular are the U.S. Free Skiing Open and Parkosaurus, whatever the hell that was. So, uh, yeah, let's start with the Free Skiing Open. So the Free Skiing Open was like we had this magazine that had such a voice. Um, you know, we had all these people involved. And, you know, as I said, there was all these tribes that didn't know each other existed, um, except through freeze. So we wanted to bring them together. And that was, and then there was, there was no slope style contests, no big air contests, and no skier cross contests, right? So, 
snowboarding was in the X Games. Skiing was not in the X Games. Um, modified shovel racing was in the X Games. Skiing was not. So we, you know, instead of arguing with ESPN, uh, when I had some friends there, so I used to, I used to kill them on this all the time. Uh, we started our own event, uh, U.S. Free Skiing Open, in the in January 1998, and it was a, it was a a three hit slope style course with no rails, essentially three mobile jumps in the middle of a, with all flat landings, it was a horrible course. Um, and JF won that, uh, and JP won the big air, which was literally just like one jump, the final jump of the slope style course. Um, and, uh, and, you know, JP won the big air and, and really just, you know, word got out that, you know, grabbing skis and landing switch was like a big thing. And then we got a huge push the summer of 98, the X Games down in San Diego had this summer jump, this, this uh, ramp that they built um, with chipped ice. And, uh, and I had been bugging those guys forever. And I said, look, and I had, I finally had the tape, right? I had the VHS tape of the US Free Skiing Open in 1998 said, these guys are going to come down. They're going to make your snowboarders look laughable. And so they're like, okay, you, they can come down and hit the jump, but it's a, we're not televising it. It's a test event. And sure enough, you know, Zox and JP and JF and, and Vinny crushed that jump. Evan Raps had some amazing jumps as well. And, uh, and, you know, blew the minds of the X games. So then the winner of 99 X games, allowed skier cross and then the winter of 2000 is when they finally um got to their senses and did big air but um it was really that it was really the u.s free skiing open that that started that those contests and and what really became so the initial thing was to bring the tribes together which was great but then um it just became about progression and, and the big air contest in particular, which we eventually put at, on the, you know, bottom of Lion's Head or a bottom of um, Larkspur, uh, Gold Peak, main, main traffic area of, of Vail. You know, and, and, and we wanted, when we selected Vail for the first one, and we were there for six years, um, we wanted to throw an event at the biggest most successful resort in America, which was Vail, the biggest brand name, because it would give us instant credibility. Um, and that was a great decision. That was like, you know, looking back on it, that really, really helped the entire free skiing movement. The fact that we had this big event in Vail and the X Games was on this piddly little hill in Snow Summit, Los Angeles, you know? Um, so, you know, our event was instantly better than theirs, um, even though they were hundred times more funded, but, um, it just, and, and the, and the open because of the time of year, we wanted to do it in, in mid to late January. And because, um, of, uh, of the fact that it was an open contest, anybody could enter we, all the best skier, all the best skiers at every best mountain at every mountain came out to Vail to, to throw it down. And they all became way better that week right as they were all next to each other and 
pushing each other. And that's where we got the first switch landings. That's where Flu did a uh, uh, you know, switch back. That's where Yoon landed a 900. That's where Andy Woods landed a 1260. Um, it's where Johnny Mosley originally did the dinner roll um, a year before he did it in the Olympics. It, he debuted it at the US Free Skiing Open. Um, so it, it became this place and this time for only skiers to come together and progress the sport. And you could go from nobody knew who you are, like TJ Schiller, to being one of the most popular and financially successful pros overnight. All the ski companies came and they signed kids all week to contracts. Um, and, and that was really what was what really fueled everything, right? It was a place where you could make a name for yourself um, and you could become a pro skier overnight. And that was a lot of incentive um, for, for everybody to come. And, uh, and, you know, and we were on television and we were, we were, you know, we had a whole magazine that we could tell the story of, of the open about. Um, and, you know, I was surprised that nobody else really made a run at us, um, but nobody else made a run at us. You know, we, we had this wonderful spot of being the biggest and best skiing only event in the world. And, uh, and, and yeah, it was awesome event and it, it lived on past freeze, um, by I think five or six years, but, um, but really when, when there was the magazine and the event and, and, and the athletes and the athlete connection, um, it was, we were firing on all. So we had to talk, like we had to talk athletes into coming like a lot of like, you know, Tanner and Simon and Yoon and those guys who came to the first ones because they needed to be discovered, didn't want to keep coming to the open, right? Because it was really, really, really difficult to win because of all the kids that were there and the format was really challenging. You had to throw down a run um, several times to win. And they didn't want to come. And we basically like told them how important this was to, to, to have a skiing only event. That go to the X Games, Go to the gravity games. Like we're not telling you not to, but you have to go to the event that started it all. And that really helped us, you know, it was really the event was the athletes. And once they got there and once they all, you know, felt the pressure to, to really um, progress the sport and to really throw down um, that, that helped the whole deal, of course. Um, but yeah, it was really all about that gathering everybody together for a skiing only event. Um, and that was what was special about it. Obviously, different than the X Games, different than everything else. Yeah. And that obviously makes great content for the magazine. Uh, was it televised at all? Yeah. The, the first one, we had a highlight clip on a, on a show that was in syndication called The Extremists. Um, Second year, uh, second year we got on Fox Sportsnet in syndication. Third year um, was a huge swing. Um, so this is an interesting, interesting story here. Uh, bear, bear with me on this one. Um, 
so third year we go in and, and I wanted to put it, you know, I had a TV background, so, you know, I could call people and talk TV with them. And so it was really important for me to be on ESPN. Um, you know, I had, they were king, they still are kingmakers in sports television. They were kingmakers in sports television back then. So I'm like, I want to be on ESPN. I cut this deal to be on ESPN two on a Saturday at like 4 p.m. Like great time slot. It's going to crush, you know, it's going to be great. And so we have it all set up and sure, I get the distribution deal in place. And then I land a huge sponsorship um, title sponsor of the U.S. Free Skiing Open, the biggest sponsor we ever had in the, in the, in the largest financial investment we've ever had. And they had ads in the magazine. They were on the East Coast Movie Tour with us. They were the U.S. Free Skiing Open title sponsor, huge sponsor, six-figure commitment to us, more money than we'd ever seen from any single sponsor, Lifestyles Condoms. And it's a, it's a perfect sponsor for a teenage male ski magazine, like in the, in the late nineties, you know, like every, you know, sexually active kids should have condoms. And so we had a ton of sexually active kids. And so it's a perfect sponsor. And, and, you know, I had submitted my sponsor list to ESPN. They clearly didn't look at it. Um, we, we had a banners all over the hill with lifestyles condoms. We had a 35 foot condom on the jump hill. Um, and you know, you can imagine what that looked like. Um, the veil homeowners freaked out and, and made us take it down. Um, and so we cut the, we cut the show. It's the greatest show in the history of skiing. I have it in the basement with all the magazines and it never saw the light of day. Um, uh, ESPN uh, wouldn't put it on the air because of all the, the condoms. Um, this is when they had just gotten bought by, by Disney. So they were like, we can't do it. Sorry, Mike. And it was, it was the hardest, absolutely the, the, the hardest, most difficult thing that's ever happened to me in my career was, was that show, that sponsorship, that event, which was the flu switchback. It never saw the light of day. We ended up cutting it up and, and sending it to all these different highlight shows and things like that. And it was on real thrills with Glenn Flake, but like it would have been perfect. Uh, the next year we got on TBS, which was great. We got a huge audience for that largest audience for a, a ski only show uh, up to that point. Um, and then we were, you know, we had a good, we got back on, eventually got back on ESPN and, you know, also on Fox. And we also did an hour on CBS, um, one year. So, um, on the network. Um, so yeah, it was, it was always, television was always important to it. Um, and it was always kind of, you know, again, I wanted to show the world what was going on. Um, you know, we were always kind of ebbing the whole like are we just talking to ourselves or like are we bringing people into the sport or are we just like completely stoking out everybody that's already in the sport and we're just talking to ourselves and that was always what we would challenge ourselves with um 
so you know easy way to do that was television wow yeah i think um I definitely wonder that at times too with the podcast. Like, are we just, am I just talking to skiers? And I think the answer is overwhelmingly yes. No one is going yeah. to listen to a two hour podcast about a very specific topic within a very specific sport. But uh, yeah, yeah, that is incredible. Yeah, we, that... you know, we, we, um, uh, like there was this trend list that came out in, in, I think it was 99 or 2000. And like we were on it like freeze magazine was on this like trend, like hottest trends in the, in the, in America list. Um, we, uh, I had a, I had a friend, I have a friend of a friend who was a producer, um, on, uh, on, uh, uh, real world. And he gave a bunch of freeze magazine shirts to cast members. So it's like season five. It's like the one after, uh, New York, um uh uh that's the san francisco one um uh you know like we like we 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 were definitely like creeping into pop culture um every now and then um we never made a huge breakthrough but you know we it was very important to us to be to make skiing relevant to the pop culture of teenagers in the late nineties and early two thousands. Like we didn't want to just be a jock ski magazine. We were trying to be a pop culture magazine. Um, you know, we, we took a lot of, um, we, you know, we, we read big brother, um, and we loved it. Um, we were, you know, we were all, you know, the, the laddie mags, Maxim and stuff and, and those, those magazines. Um, we, we devoured those, it took a lot of ideas from that. So we really wanted to break through into pop culture with, with the sport, um, because we were being dominated by snowboarding at the time. Um, and we, we succeeded there. Like we definitely like snowboarding was going like this scheme was going like this and kind of popularity and, and youth movement. And then all of a sudden, boom, it didn't take us long. We got right up with snowboarding. Um, within a three, four years. Yeah. It's a bummer because nothing broke through quite like skateboarding did. Skateboarding, yeah. you know, you, you even see people walking around today with Thrasher hoodies on and they've probably never yeah. read Thrasher magazine in their life. You know, I yeah. grew up on all the MTV shows, Bam Margera and like just every, just everything. Yeah, Ske Skateboarding really broke into the culture. And uh, it's funny to imagine a different universe where skiing broke yeah, in that hard. Yeah. Yeah, it was challenging. Um, you know, I, I think I think what we what we really leaned into was that um, we could create uh, an image through not just our magazine, but like through all the ski companies. Like they all changed their graphics, and, and you know their graphics got cooler um all the apparel companies like a bunch of snowboarding companies started outfitting skiers or apparel companies changed their styles and their colors to be more relevant and this is what we pushed all this stuff really really hard um and and so you know we, you would you know we didn't push it we, you, you wouldn't see people walking down the street with a with a k2 shirt like they would definitely be a skier right like 
Um, but um, you know, where all this, where all this product sales, where it all started blowing up, you know, the all mountain ski was essentially a derivative of the, of the twin tip. And now it's the, you know, now most skis have two, two tips, you know, are twin tipped, right? Um, rocker technology, you know, came from essentially jib skis too. And, and, you know, Shane kind of uh, understanding the dynamics of, of how to change ski design um, based off of his experimentation in Alaska. And like, we're like, as a community, you know, in the, the tie between the athletes and the magazine was so tight. We talked we, all the time. We traveled the world together. You know, all we did was talk about skiing. Um, we were probably incredibly boring people, um, but um, uh, like it was such a concentration of, of trying to progress and trying to push our version of the sport into the mainstream um, uh, and not sacrificing anything with that, right? Like we weren't, we wouldn't sacrifice, we wouldn't cheese it up to do that. We, we just wanted to break through with what we thought was really, really compelling content people. And, and I think we did that. I think, you know, when, when people say, you know, you, you start out the podcast as saying like, you, know, you talk to people and they say, you know, I remember this in freeze or, or, you know, I read this in freeze and it changed me or like, you know, I suddenly, you know, through freeze magazine, I realized that there was this whole thing going on in skiing that I wanted to be part of. That was all on purpose, man. I mean, we like, we wanted that to happen. And, uh, and that is the best, the best thing about freeze um, is that, you know, that, that all happened and that whole generation of, of skiers, um, you know, really set the table for everything that's going on today and why people buy fat skis, why people wear certain clothing, um, you know, where they ski, why there are terrain parks in the, in the mount, on the mountains, why the size of the terrain parks are so big, all that stuff. We led, we pushed hard and not freeze, but like freeze and the athletes together because uh, we really did it all together. We were very, very, very integrated on the whole thing. Yeah. Wow. That's inspiring. And uh, so I, the other, the other event that I mentioned, and it's the one that I love yeah. coming across when I'm digitizing these magazine, what was up with Parkasaurus? That is, just, it's just like the best event ever built for photo shoots pretty much uh so so what was your involvement with that i don't even know if that's something that you guys spearheaded but it was certainly uh... oh no yeah we started that whole thing yeah so um so similar to the us free skiing open um uh you know we, we only got these kids for three three four days right like everybody came together for three or four days and it was a competition so everybody's kind of hiding their runs you know there really wasn't anything to shoot in practice right um and then because the x games came the next week everybody was gone so we needed a we needed a chance to get everybody together on snow in a in a mellow environment um uh to where we could get a lot of really really good photography so that was you know we needed that we knew we needed that um uh 
Snowboard Magazine or Snowboard, yeah, Snowboard Magazine had Super Park. And then, and, and Transworld had, Transworld Snowboarding had something else, like something park, right? And so we're like, all right, what should we name ours? Like Super Duper Park or like, you know, Great Park. And we were just kind of like, again, just like when we came up with Freeze Magazine, we came up with the name Freeze, just totally random. Um, and there was like this thing going around at the time where like if something was big, you would put a Saurus on the back of it, right? Like that was a lexicon thing in the in the lexicon at the time, right? So yeah, it's like, okay, park asaurus. Killer, great name. And we needed a theme anyways, because you know, our director always wanted themes. So Parkosaurus was was literally just a park shoot, an opportunity for people for to get to get to get together in a casual environment to create great photography. And and we had every single resort wanted to host us, which was really cool. Um, and uh, and we took the first one to Snow Summit, and we did that. We could have had the choice of any mountain. We went to Snow Summit because that was the epicenter of park snowboarding at the time. Chris Gunnerson, Gunny Gunnerson um, was a young cat driver at the time at Snow Summit and he built the best terrain features in the world. And he was hired by every single event around the world to, to create terrain features. And so I called him up and I was like, we're coming there. You're hosting us, I'm bringing the best and you know, we want you to build the best and and that was another thing too is like you know, a lot of resorts would build these features for snowboarders like for the forum team or for the burton team and only four or five guys and girls would get to session it and then they would tear it down because those snowboarders didn't want anybody else to like get similar photography and they didn't want the skiers to go higher because skiers go higher so we went out to Snow Summit and they built a custom park for us. And, and we, we spent a week there shooting. And again, same thing, like once all those athletes are together, once they're pushing each other and the photographers are there and there's a huge competition amongst the photographers to get us, get a shot that nobody else is getting, get a, you know, land, you know when, the, when Tanner lands this trick, or when Flu nails this rail, or when LaRose gets, you know, boosts out of the pipe 20 feet for the first time in the history of the sport, there was a lot of kind of, you know, um, competition to get that shot. And so we knew if we just put all the athletes and all the um, photographers together with a great terrain park, we would get great content. And um, we did. And yeah, Parkosaurus was what we named it. The first year we just named it that, like, yeah, I think it was year three that we had like this 50 foot inflatable Tyrannosaurus Rex where people were sessioning these side hits over it. Um, we had, uh, it was right, right when Jurassic Park came out. Uh, so we actually got like from LA cause we were near LA. Um, we got one of the, uh, uh, inflatables that they used as a background in Jurassic Park. That was one of the, that was the actual inflatable that we got from Parkosaurus. 
so we kind of played on the theme a bunch too but um yeah it was again real simple stuff who are the best skiers let's take them to the best terrain park in the country pair them up with the best photographers the rest was pretty easy yeah <laughs> don't miss the shot guys <laughs> yeah don't miss the shot and we got great stuff there and oh I, and the other thing too is we invited all the film companies and that was something that the other park shoots in snowboarding and and you know even powder like invited um some skiers to super park because they were owned by the same company as as snowboarder magazine um we invited all the film companies because we wanted all the content to be out there um and uh and we kind of did that for the first time you know most of those things were always exclusive to a single film company but we brought them all because we wanted um the content to be everywhere wow that's incredible i think uh yeah you definitely see a lot of the same thing with like i, I i'm not sure if you're familiar with it but like the nines competition now in switzerland yeah they just build Very the best familiar. park possible yeah and uh yeah so hard. i think you know, the, we had similar goals as the nines competition for sure. Um, but yeah, we, um, uh, we wanted to put our spin on it. Right. And our spin was, uh, you know, kind of make fun of it, kind of be funny. And that's what the name was, um, you know, have an inflatable dinosaur for no reason other than to try to be funny. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, get everybody together. And it was a, it was a time for us to really kind of, um, you know, we would put out the invites and then we would inevitably get phone calls into the office. Like, Hey, I'm skiing with this kid. Um, you got to invite him. Um, he's crushing it here and, you know, wherever. And that's how we found a lot of new guys too. Um, and we were always on the look for, for new guys, um, is, is through Parkosaurus and people inviting their, their ski buddies to it. Yeah. I think you're breaking the heart of a lot of the ph photographers today talking about staff positions and you get, you know, yeah. you're, you're getting to go to the best park shoots ever. And it's just one thing after another. Like it's, I think the industry's definitely changed a lot on the, yeah. on the media side for sure. Yeah. We, you know, we didn't, we had pretty good editorial budgets. Um, you know, several hundred thousand dollars a year in editorial budgets um, that again, just went into the creation of great content. Um, and that didn't exist before, right? Like ski magazine stories were like two skiers and, and a writer and a photographer like traveling to Chamonix and, and staging pictures, right? Like not, creating compelling content like staging pictures and talking about all the reasons why you should go to Chamonix or valid there or whatever right we put our money into like hey Chris O'Connell hey Flip McCrerick hey Nate Abbott like these really talented young photographers here's a bunch of money go grab five or six skiers and go somewhere and create the best content you possibly can and progress the sport. And there was a lot of pressure to do that. And that money all paid off. And like we had stuff in the magazine, we had more first descents in freeze magazine than, than every other ski magazine times a hundred. Um, we had more first tricks 
than, than you know, any ski magazine times a thousand. Um, we, you know, like every issue, once you got to the editorial, once you got past the humor stuff, once you get to the pictures and, and to the editorial, like it was documenting the progression of the sport. It wasn't documenting places to go, things to see, meals to have, none of that bullshit that was all about ski magazines at the time and kind of still is. It was about like progression, cutting edge content, never seen, never done before stuff. Um, that was what the hallmark was. That's awesome. So, so what was the, the call like when it finally got canned and the party was over? Did you see it coming from a mile away or did it take you, take you by surprise? So I, like we were having some problems um, uh, just with new, new ownership and new leadership. So, you know, when we got bought by AOL, then AOL Time Warner split up and we went with Time Inc. Um, and, um, and they were, you know, this 200 year old magazine company and, and there was a lot of pressure on the stock um, on the stock from the stockholders and, you know, and from the stock to really kind of cut and become more profitable and, you know, just do what you do well and don't get involved in all these other things. Right. And, you know, youth, youth magazines was another thing. That's for sure. Like it wasn't in their core business model. So there was a lot of pressure from timing um, down, not to freeze magazine, but just to any, any business that wasn't, you know, had a 20% margin and were gener and had, you know, X number of subscribers, right. There was like this big kind of pressure down. And I knew we didn't meet a lot of our magazines at Transworld. And this time I would, I'd been promoted to running, um, non-endemic sales and, and marketing at, at Transworld. Um, and, and Micah, Abrams was running freeze magazine day to day. And, um, so, you know, I, I was protecting them, but I would kind of been promoted into this corporate level. So I knew what was happening. Um, and then also I just kind of figured I needed a new job and I wanted to go back to television. So I was interviewing and, and I had an offer to, to go. Um, I went on the East coast movie tour. I interviewed in New York city for a couple television jobs. And by the time I got home, I had, I had two offers to, to move to New York city and, and to take jobs back in television. And, and literally was going to like kind of take the week to figure out the best way to set everything up for freeze and to make sure that it didn't get cut and, you know, to make sure like I was going to stick around not take these jobs right away, but stick around to try to create a soft landing for freeze. And yeah, just that didn't happen. It, you know, we, like I walked in Monday morning and, and they were like, Hey, we're, we're making some changes. Um, I actually got fired from Transworld, which was kind of fun. Um, but, uh, you know, like, again, you know, to be, it was devastating to me that, that, you know, freeze couldn't continue on. 
um, that, and, and I knew that they weren't going to let anybody else take over. Like they weren't, they weren't going to sell it. Um, they weren't going to, to do anything because, you know, they wanted all the subscribers to fold into skiing magazine and they wanted, you know, all the advertisers just to up their, their advertising in skiing magazine or transfer snowboarding. Right. They had like landing spots for all the money they thought the, they did not anticipate that the industry would be so upset with them that many of them would boycott skiing and snowboarding, um, which made me feel good. But, um, but anyways, they, you know, they made a call um, and, and just were looking at numbers and really weren't looking at anything besides uh, subscriber numbers in a spreadsheet. That was what they made their entire decision on. And it was, yeah, super unfortunate, but, um, you know, I, yeah, I got, I got fired, but I had this job offer. And so I got a year's worth of severance from trans world and, and I started the next week on a new job. So I had two paychecks for a year. So it, it was fine for me. Um, and that, and that like, and again, not to sound like crass about it, but it was just like my world transition on a dime so quickly that I didn't process in the moment that whole thing, right? Like I just, I was like, okay, these guys don't want me. These guys want me, I'm gone. And, you know, I would really like to try to help a transition here because I'm really big into legacy. It's really important to me, um, you know, the legacy of freeze and just the legacy of like anything I've done in my career is really important. I've done, four startups I've done, you know, a lot of different projects. There's a, there's a 20, you know, college, uh, college sports television, which is now CBS sports network. You know, I was on that startup team. Like these things are really legacy and, and doing things that are, um, that stand the test of time, even if they're not still around important to me. Um, but like it, everything happened so fast and, and everything was so crazy. And I was engaged to be married and, and just, you know, it was, it was just nuts. Um, and, uh, yeah, I lived probably five years of, of lifetime in five months. Um, it was super stressful. Um, but you know, like it, I didn't, I, I never was given the opportunity to really process it that well. Um, uh, when it happened and it took me years to kind of get over it. Um, it took me a long, like I might not be over it now, but it definitely took me years to, to kind of recover from it. Yeah. That's very, that's very, very intense to have it kind of all end all at once. Sometimes yeah. it's for the better rather than a long drawn out death. Just, you know, I, look, if and- I was still running freeze magazine right now, I would, yeah, it would be a bad deal for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and all that stuff. So, you know, everything works out for, for a reason. Um, but again, like, you know, I think freeze as a, as an online publication and at, and the U S free skiing open as an event and, and, you know, uh, the, that part of the sport, um, with investment from the industry to continue to create heroes that are relatable to young skiers it's really important it's happening 
kind of despite itself, you know, like, you know, it's, it's happening in pockets and, you know, I can say that, you know, I, I would do it this way or I would do it that way. But, you know, to be honest, it's, um, I think the sport's in, in, in pretty good shape now um, with young skiers. Um, but, you know, if Freeze was around, I think it'd be better off. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So that's the complete cycle of freeze. So if you, if you want to give from, uh, maybe we can give an abbreviated uh, summary of what you've been up to since then, kind of uh, however many years it's been, 15 years, 20 years. Yeah. So uh, we published our last magazine in 2005. Um, so it's been what, 17 years? Yeah, since 17 then? years. Wow. Uh, I never really kind of did the math on that um, until now. Uh, I mean, it was a world. I moved right to New York City and, and started working um, for a startup, College Sports Television, and and did a lot of what I did at Freeze of just like creating events and creating sponsorship opportunities and doing things in the college space that ESPN wasn't um, because ESPN was dominant and we were a startup. So really just kind of figuring things out in the college space. And, and, um, and then we got bought by CBS sports and, and I went and they kind of elevated me up to be head of sales of a, of that cable network um, and got to, you know, really progress my career and, and did really well and, and, and really enjoyed that. And, um, I had a, uh, uh, you know, at freeze, I never had more than four employees. Um, and when, even when I got promoted at Transworld, I think I went from, you know, four people that reported me at freeze to six at Transworld. Right. Um, but at, at this cable network, I had 22 people, um, on a team and, and, um, we had a great time and, and it was a great, great job for me. And I loved working in New York city. And I kind of saw myself being there for the rest of my career, but then um, just got a call from a headhunter one day and was like, I can't believe you exist. You have big media experience at CBS. You have sponsorship experience. You have really good connections to, to brands and to companies and to advertisers. And you have a ski background, um, lifelong ski background. Um, and uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, that's, you're right. That's me. And they said, well, we've got a job for you at the U.S. ski team. And I was like, and I knew the organization. I mean, I, you know, I was competed in the sport and, 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 you know, had gone to the 2002 games um, with a freeze magazine credential um, and, you know, had, was a big fan of the, and knew a bunch of people on the team. And had also been working behind the scenes on on trying to get free skiing in the Olympics um, on some various committees and doing some consulting work from New York City. Um, but I didn't think they had a job for me. But you know, I went out to Park City and interviewed and sounded good. And and then just the realization that I had that I could raise my you know I had three very young kids at the time, uh, one that was like months old. Um, and, uh, you know, I was raised in a ski town in Sun Valley and if I can raise my kids in a ski town, um, I knew how special that was. 
And um, so, yeah, did it and, and left an amazing career working with amazing people in New York City in, in a television business that, that I love and, and that I know really well. Um, and there's a lot of times that I miss that I miss the hustle and I miss that whole thing. But, um, you know, when I get to go grab a couple runs on the mountain in the morning, um, and, you know, I'm in my desk at 10 or 11, or I'm able to, you know, go on a mountain bike ride after this interview and, and, and just living in the mountains is just can't be replaced. So it was the right decision for me. And, I came out here and I had a really, really successful run with, with the US ski team and grew that business um, higher than it had ever been grown and ever and had some of the most successful revenue years um, in the history of the organization and, and um, got to host the 2015 Alpine World Championships in Vail and did this incredible television deal um, with NBC for that and kind of you know made a lot of great changes there that still exist today. So, you know, back to the legacy thing. Um, but, you know, like I, uh, I have a, I have a six to eight year life cycle. Um, freelance television for four years, freeze magazine for seven years, um, uh, television business in New York city between CSTV and CBS seven and a half years, us ski team, us ski and snowboard for six and a half years. Now I've been doing this business for five years. So a year and a half from now, I'll probably change again. Um, but yeah, it was just time for me to change the ski team and, and go off on my own and, and, and uh, be my own boss. That was really the biggest uh, thing because uh, I've been blessed with having a lot of really, really great mentors and bosses. Um, but I've also had a couple of really bad ones. And um, yeah, my, my time at the ski, my time, I got hired by one of the best bosses I ever had, Bill Merrill, and then I left when I had one of the worst bosses I ever had. So um, yeah, it was a good timing to leave, and and uh, you know it's been great. I don't regret it at all, and uh, and yeah, you get to live in Park City and and still be involved in in a bunch of different sports and sports marketing and do a little some things in the ski industry, but for the most part, um, kind of being out of the ski industry is nice too. Yeah. I can tell you it's, it's easier to pay the mortgage when you're outside the ski industry. <laughs> that is, that is the overwhelming sentiment from nearly every yeah. single guest on here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah. yeah. So that, that covers everything. Um, what, what, what should we leave it off on? What, what would you like to see for the future of skiing? I'd say like, again, I think that, I think that the sport of skiing is in a great place. Um, you know, I mean, look, climate change is, is a horrible thing for the sport. Um, and you know, we had a winter out here in park city that wasn't that great from a powder perspective. Um, but you know, I'm hoping that things like that are cyclical and, and, you know, maybe we're not skiing in November, but we're skiing in May some of the best powder you're going to get is in April and May, not February. Like these are the changes that are coming. So, um, but like in terms of the experience and, and the, the, um, the package of what it offers as a recreation and as a lifestyle and as a passion and as a sport, 
it's got everything that you would ever want. So, uh, you know, and I think what we saw during COVID with, with all the past sales and all the people visiting and all that stuff, it's, you know, it's great for, for everybody involved in this, that's making a living off the sport. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think the industry, uh, uh, certainly there's room for improvement, right? And I think the industry as a whole um, is getting lazy uh, in their marketing. Um, they are, you know, doing search and they're putting ad, you know, and, and they're doing, um, you know, just really simple, basic, you know, digital advertising or, or, you know, everybody's saying content creation, content creation, but they're, they're running the same formulas. Um, and nobody's really doing anything out of the box or progressing things. Um, and the, and the media side of the business is not working really closely with the manufacturers, um, like used to be when back in our day, right? Um, the whole business was built on relationships. And um, I think, you know, people committing 100% of their marketing budgets to, you know, really simple out of the box digital impressions because it performs um, to whatever metric they're, they're targeting, which is probably a wrong metric. Um, you know, I, I, I just think that that's dangerous, but I mean, everybody's selling skis, so it seems to be working. Um, and, you know, I think I would say that athletes are not also not as um, uh, pro skiers, pro athletes are not as uh, cultivated and supported as much as they were and as much as they should be. That would be something that I would definitely like to see come back a little bit more of, of, um, the, the, of the manufacturers um, supporting athletes a little bit better. And then, um, and then the industry kind of rallying around some of those achievements um, that they're able to, to pull off. Um, something like Chris Davenport skiing every 14er in Colorado should you know, is amazing and should go, you should be talked about by everybody um, type of thing, you know, and you just feel like some of the stuff just um, doesn't get the proper amount of, uh, of coverage and credit that, that it could or should. Um, so, but again, you know, kind of nitpicky um, because I do think that the industry is in a great place uh, and, and people, uh, people from big cities want to spend tens of thousands of dollars on a ski vacation still probably more than ever and people with a lot of money from the cities um want to buy real estate in these ski towns and some of that stuff culturally is gonna be a challenge but um overall it's you, you know i'm not one that's ever complained about people going skiing i just i can't um my mom was the head of the chamber of commerce in Ketchum Sun Valley. So it was like her job to convince people to take ski vacations in Sun Valley. Right. So just, it's my DNA to encourage every single person in the world to go out skiing as often as, as you can. Um, so you're not going to ever get me complaining about crowds and about ski culture and mountain town culture and all this stuff. Um, even though it's very different, um, and maybe not for the better in, in some places. Um, but overall, uh, sport is great. The technology is fantastic. I enjoy it now as much as I ever have in my life. Um, 
and I ski now more than I ever have in my life, um, including when I was a kid. So, um, you know, it's all good in my, in my opinion. Well, there you have it. Sounds Thank good. you very much for coming on today. This was a pleasure talking to you. Super insightful. And uh, I'm glad we could get it done. Yeah, it was a fun walk down memory lane. And again, anybody out there is listening that um, uh, hopefully they'll be able to see some of these uh, freeze magazines in their digital splendor, courtesy of, of your website. So uh, um, yeah, there's a lot of stories behind every one of those magazines um, that we didn't, we weren't able to share, but um, it's always fun to kind of talk about that run that we had with freeze. Cause it was a fantastic one. Awesome. All right. That was our episode with Mike Jaquit. Very thankful that we can get him on the show. Mike wanted me to throw this in at the end. They are selling merch with the original freeze logo on it at freezemerch.com. All the proceeds go to the foundations for Shane, JP, CR and Sarah. So if you'd like to check that out, go to freezemerch.com. <laughs>